Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob. And this week on Cinemodities, we have to start with a Cinemodities update. This is so exciting. I don't think we've had one of these in a little bit. But this Cinemodities update is about music, specifically about an inferiority complex. Now, they have, for many months, I would say now, graciously provided our intro theme song. They even provided the intro theme song for a Star Wars podcast that Zach is involved with. I don't know too much about that. But apparently, Zach interviewed, or had on, I should say, one of the people from an inferiority complex, and they sounded a lot like me, Zach. Did you did you notice that? Yeah, but a lot more obnoxious. A lot more obnoxious. Okay, so I'm a little better than that person? Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay, okay, that's good to hear. Plus well, the guy in the Knights of Air podcast smelled a little, so... <laughs> <laughs> he smelled so strong it smelled a little over the internet is that what you said i've never seen smell permeate the the interwebs but apparently it's the first time for everything right on right on well you know i think that's a uh, pretty interesting in and of its own right but we have to mention that an inferiority complex uh has released a new single new music they've released a video for it and you can check out their second album, Semi-Perfect Yet Sublime, coming out December 4th. That's pretty exciting, Zach. I'm always a fan of new music. You can check out the show notes for some links to those things. Uh, give them a listen, because they are fantastic. And I know Zach agrees. He listens to them every day along with his S-Club 7, right? Of course. It's in his workout mix. <laughs> but the S-Club's always placed ahead, though. Unfortunately, this the S Club is always ranked ahead of inferiority complex. I know you can't you you know you have to just take the ground you can get right. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Zach. That's our Cinemodities update for today, and I guess it was partly because we had to mention it, partly because it is putting off the mention that this is our last episode of November, right? November draws to a close with this oh, episode. Man. man, every time a series ends, it just makes me a little bit of sad. It makes me feel, you know, Monstober, November, we got these great names. Oh, geez. It's it's just always coming to a close, right? These are the episodes I remember. But I, anyway. I, I look forward to when we announce the next series at the end of this episode. Mm, that's going to be fun, yes. I have to remind myself before that happens what the next series is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. This week in November, we are discussing uh, probably the least November movie, right, Zach? Because as I said at the start of November, I felt that the title November came from our fans asking us, does this movie exist? And this month we got to say, nope, it just doesn't, but we're talking about it anyway. But this week we have a movie that technically does exist for in all intents and purposes, right? Well, before before we get into that, I think we should at least name what we're going to be talking about. Okay, okay. You don't want to just keep it ambiguous for the whole like you know hour and a half we discuss well, it. I think that'd be great, though. But unfortunately, <laughs> once again, the title gives that away. Unfortunately, the title keeps thwarting our efforts of being ambiguous and making our audience guess what we're talking about. Yeah, we um, should just switch to numbers as our title, shouldn't we? Exactly. Much like the the like one of the like what was it the forty. 
third incarnation of Monster. We're just put mystery movie, mystery <laughs> Mis- movie number three. <laughs> this is mystery episode forty-one of Cinemodities. <laughs> Here, let's discuss a movie that you have no idea what it is. But no, today's episode is Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four, mm-hmm. which is a, a hallmark of this series is the use of colons in movie titles, which sadly <laughs> will come to a close with our next series. But no, the point Rob's trying to make is, is that we do, in a way, this is another one of those times where I'm going to have to frame the debate or the conversation a specific way or else Rob's is going to uh, uh, rain on my parade. <laughs> but... Uh, Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, which he didn't direct. Roger Corman's essentially like a, a producer. He's, I don't think he's really a director by any way, shape, or means. But this film does exist. It was, it was a script, it was a completed script, it was shot, it was completed in post-production, but it was never released to the public. The only way to get this film is through bootlegs. And whether that bootleg be on VHS or DVDs or over time YouTube, it has never been given an official release. So essentially, you are when you watch this, you are watching a VHS copy, the VHS copy, probably either 10 to 15 times over. Yeah. And even though I would imagine Rob's going to disagree with me on this, but I think in a weird way, even though we do get a final product, which is something we don't get with the previous films, this is a sort of quasi-angle of this in that even though we have it, it's not in a in a state I would imagine anybody involved with it would prefer us to see it in. That's that's actually a fair point. Um, they do talk about that in the documentary that, you know, they kind of didn't have enough money to go through with a lot of the special effects, with a lot of the looping, things like that. Um, to be fair, I guess I have to get out of the way. I started to watch the unreleased version of the Fantastic Four, but I fell asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep during it, and when I woke up, I did not have enough time to watch the rest of it. <laughs> well, that's that's not surprising because I made a very conscious decision not to watch it. Oh, okay, okay. Because I thought you would have seen it, you know, maybe like a million times over. I've never seen it because I, for this preparation for this episode, I did watch the trailer. The mm-hmm. trailer is online in HD because I guess that that's been available or somebody had a master of that, so it's been able to be like re, I guess remastered. Yeah. And as I I, I use that as my basis mm-hmm. because I much like the the Jodorowsky book in Jodorowsky's Dune. This is kind of the only really uh, the closest approximation to what the what I guess the f- filmmakers want us to see because yeah. even though the special effects aren't done. Uh, like I said, think about the uh, the acting was good from what I've been able to understand, but it's a special effects, the sets, basically everything but the performances was lacking, mm-hmm. and not for lack of effort. And adding insult to injury, you have to look at all that stuff with a very dark shade over it, and that's essentially what the bootleg is. So I feel it's it's not really worth watching because if if you are going to scrutinize something, I won't be able to scrutinize it in all of its pristine in focus glory yeah it's kind of like imagine like trying to like uh analyze a painting but you're doing it through a keyhole when it's dark out it's like it doesn't serve a purpose all you're doing is just trying to do something for the sake of doing it yeah um yeah. and that's definitely not a hallmark of cinemodities is uh, okay. efforts and futility 
Okay, yeah, that's you. You bring up a really good point, Zach, and it it reminds me of. I love your analogy. What did you say? Viewing a painting through a keyhole when it's dark out is that what yes. you said? Yes. That's a great analogy. I don't think I would have thought of that. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is more of. One time I read the book America by Franz Kafka, and there's a point in that book where it just kind of like falls off and it like doesn't make any sense. And when I was reading it, I was like, what is going on? Like, like literally, oh, this makes no sense. Less sense than Finnegan's Wake. I think that puts it in terms that Zach can understand. And oh I, I found out that this is actually one of the books that Franz Kafka never finished before he died. And I was reading like an incomplete manuscript. And so I, I, I kind of see the same thing as you can't really, you know, interpret or analyze or criticize something that is unfinished. And Franz Kafka's America is an analog to Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. It's not what anybody really intended it to be, right? Definitely. Right on. Because we'll get into it because I do want to give a little bit of a breakdown for those who don't know what this is or the history behind it. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where it's – even though it's – finished for all intents and purposes it's nobody's ideal vision of what this could be nobody mm-hmm. at the end of the day is happy with this except for maybe the actors that were involved exactly but uh no getting to what this actually this documentary is about was back during the 90s there was a german film producer who actually was the producer behind the never-ending story with the giant like flying dog dragon oh okay and, yeah it's that guy and he had the rights to the Fantastic Four. This is before Marvel was the powerhouse it is now, or basically they just write out blank checks. Yeah, I and loved ca- the uh, I loved the aspect of this documentary that talked about the dark times of Marvel. That was great. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Nobody really understands that there was a time when Marvel. Well, they weren't making the movies. They were. It, it was licensing out the people to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, but after the nineties, you had a German film producer. Who was who had the rights to this, and his option on the license was about to run out, and he had to have a film in production by I think the end of what nineteen ninety two. I think so. Two or three, yeah, yeah, ninety two or ninety three. And so they basically, in the span of like two months, had he hired Roger Corman, this German film producer, Burke, Bert Eichinger, I think his name is, and they had to basically they wrote a script. Roger Corman's company wrote a script, hired actors, and they started filming. I think five days before the 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 license was about the option was about to run out <laughs> yeah uh and basically what happened was that they, they filmed the movie and then during post-production they basically stopped getting word and stopped really getting any sort of money from roger corman they eventually completed the film with the little scraps of money they had going for them mm-hmm. and they started promoting the movie the actors with their own money and just effort and uh, the powers that be got a hold of this information that they were trying to promote it and eventually just more or less got pulled away from them. And that's essentially it. And the movie more or less just disappeared from the public space until it showed up from what um, I can gather in the early 2000s. It started to show up in the convention bootleg circuit where you'd see things like the Star Wars holiday special, um, really kind of like uh, notorious things that were made, but like the creative forces that own the property not the ones who made but but the ones who actually own the ip kind of did everything within their power to hide it Mm -hmm. uh it's funny oddly enough this is very similar to the star wars holiday special in a weird way where it's this it's this thing that exists yet it's only i think the star wars holiday special is another example of staring at a painting through a keyhole in the dark i think (laughs) like even though we have that in much well obviously star wars will get infinitely more attention than this ever will 
But I do think they're very similar in the sense that whoever owns the IP does not want this getting out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, that's that's basically the story in a nutshell, is that you had this film based on a super-duper popular comic book that just never, to this day, has really never seen the light of day in any sort of official capacity. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point in there, which I want to ask about. Um, this documentary kind of takes the stance, I would say, that the reason this movie never got a release is because it was never supposed to. And we kind of hear people in this documentary say that ad nauseum. Like, they repeat that a lot, that this movie was never supposed to get a release. I, I want to know your thoughts, Zach. Is is that the case, that the filming of this movie, like Zach said, you know, five days before the option was supposed to run out, was this just a way to extend the rights? Because I think they make that claim that, you know, Marvel just wanted, or somebody wanted to just extend the rights, so they needed this movie filmed at a certain amount of time. Uh, yeah, well, okay. Uh, I'm going to answer Rob's question with a very lengthy answer that he's not asking for. Yeah, you you understand this stuff better than I do, and I feel like this is the most technical of the documentaries we've seen in November, at least in terms of the, the inner workings of the movie and the industry. Yeah, well, can, well, this is my thing. So I, I did not know about this movie, the the actual... Again, they keep saying it's Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. It's not. He produced it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's Oli Sassone's, right? Yeah, it's Oli Sassone's Fantastic Four. But saying Roger Corman... Obviously, when you say Roger Corman, most people know what you mean by that. Yeah. Uh, if you say Oli Sassone's Fantastic Four, people are like, Who? <laughs> um, I didn't even see the first three, which is one of the one, maybe one of the greatest Robism jokes ever. <laughs> but I wasn't even aware that this film, the the nineteen nineties film, existed until I was a freshman in college, where I had a professor who, throughout my college career, was like my comics guru. I would go to him periodically. He only worked in the fall semesters, really, so I could only go to him for a certain amount of months. And he knew this stuff. And I remember him telling me at one point, he's like, "Oh, there was like a Fantastic Four movie that was never released." And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm like, I didn't know that existed. And again, keep in mind, this is like 2010, 2011. This is before really the MCU and Marvel really yeah. hit its stride. And there was no, there was no Thor at this point. You really just had Iron Man, and that was mm-hmm. kind of it. And and, the, and the Hulk and the Hulk, right? Well, nobody counted that. That was another movie that was kind of. That's a weird movie <laughs> in the MCU canon where nobody really, like, nobody. It's there, but nobody really talks about it anymore. Um, that's okay. that's the oh, yeah. Roger Corman Fantastic Four of MCU films. It's there, but nobody really wants to talk about it. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. Okay, but uh, no. So I went on like YouTube and I found it on YouTube back when like YouTube like forced you to like split things into different parts. I think it was on YouTube in like parts one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And I remember telling my teacher about things like, "Oh, I'm surprised it's up there." He's like, "I'm surprised somebody hasn't tried to take it down." In which I think going back to the real scary stories episode, it's. If you have something that somebody owns and it's on YouTube and nobody's doing anything to take it down, that usually means whoever owns it doesn't care. Yeah. Which which is great for uh, free access, but it also means, oh, crap, nobody cares about this, <laughs> which might be the ultimate death knell of any sort of media. Sure. Uh, but no, so back, I think we've already hinted at it a couple times over November, that you had all these documentaries coming out about these films that were never made. But this was the first one I ever heard about. This was the one I think this was okay. like announced sometime in like two thousand, early two thousand thirteen. So we're talking pre Jodorowsky's Dune, pre Death of Superman Lives, pre Lost Soul, 
And I'm like, wow, like, this is the one I want to know, know the most about because there wasn't really a lot of information about it. Like the story, like Rob said, the story always was it was made as a way to hold on to the rights. And that was kind of it. It's like that, that was your answer. Like, people were like, oh, why wasn't this released? It was that one sentence. Everybody had that answer. I'm going from uh, uh, film journalists that have 2,000 unique visitors a month on their website all the way up to Stanley. That was just the canned response everybody had to this. Okay. So I was really excited about this when it got announced. And then over time, you had Jodorowsky's Dune. You had Death of Superman Lives. You had Lost Soul. And this one just took forever to come out. I remember – I think I was like I, – I, I followed their page on Facebook and just forever, like maybe like once every three months, they'd be like, oh, it's still coming. We're still working on it. And it's just like, it was like, what is going on with this? And eventually it came out. Uh, I found out if I, 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 like Rob knows by the copy I shared with him that I, it was only these ones that I taped it off TV when it was like on Showtime or whatever. Going back to Rob's original question of like, what's the make of this? I watched this and I kind of had, like, I always had that understanding of what this was about. And it wasn't, again, I've had this now for a couple of years. And I re- not as much as Lost Soul. I, I did not watch this as much as Lost Soul. But I'd rewatch this, and I really every time I watch it, I walk away from it more confused because I could never figure out what it is that they're trying to get at in this movie. And I watch it, and I'd be like, "Well, technically, it was a rights holder thing, but at the same time, you got the comment at the very end about Avi Arad and his thing, which we we could spend if you want. Again, I don't think it's funny. Twenty years from now, someone's going to make the greatest Marvel documentary ever on the ever on the career of Avi Arad. That man had his, has had his fingers so far into the pie of Marvel and is re- responsible for so many of its successes and even more of its failures. <laughs> uh, like I said, Avi Arad, fascinating human beings and just what, what his role is and how they, uh, how he got to be in charge of Marvel. And to this day has a huge stake in Marvel. Okay. Um, when it comes right more of the, more of the Sony stuff. Now he has no role in the, uh, the, the, the Disney angle of things. But no, as I watched this, I really had – it wasn't until this viewing where I really kind of put my thinking cap on and I kind of just stared at the screen holding my eye, my eyelids open that I was really able to kind of sit there, concentrate, and kind of really discern what this thing is going for. Okay. Uh, but no, to answer your question, I guess much like Stanley, everyone else says, yes, this techni- that's the canned response until somebody gives us – until somebody gives us a definitive answer mm-hmm. um, considering that Burke Eichinger is dead. Yeah. We'll never know for certain what his intention was with this. That's the sad thing that back like in the early 2000s, nobody would have interviewed him. If somebody did interview him, no one would ever have asked him about something like this because it would have just been like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of those things where the – unfortunately, we'll never have an answer as to why this got made. But to get into the more technical side of things, um, in my background, like Rob said, just kind of reading stuff to understanding how the business has worked, I believe 101% that this guy, Burke Eichinger, made this film as a – rights retainer okay but the thing that doesn't make sense is that considering that when this was produced in the mid 90s the home video rental boom was still occurring he could mm-hmm. have made a small fortune and recouped his his investment of whether it be a million that's weird everything i because in my book that i've referenced the the greatest sci-fi films never made there's a chapter on this Okay, and, and surprisingly, that book, which the chapter on this, I think, is maybe ten pages long. In the first two pages, gives a more concise reason as to why this movie ended up the way it did in the hour and a half documentary does. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the record, I do not have all of Monstope. No, I have all of Note Vendor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> see, Monstope is bleeding into Note Vendor. Uh, 
But mm. out of all the ones we've discussed, this is my least favorite because okay. I feel it, it is as a uh, filmmaking project it is kind of scattershot and that it doesn't have a. It has a clear thesis, but the execution of the thesis isn't as well as it should be. I agree. But getting back to the um, the rights thing. There was this boom again. You saw your boom of home video rentals. They could have put this into blockbusters in local video rental chains or, or stores, independently owned, and they could have made a fortune off. That's this. a really good point. And and that's why when they say, "Oh, this guy pumped," because in my book they claim that they had a one and a half million dollar budget, and then they claim that Bert, Bert Eichinger bought the rights back from Roger Corman for another million dollars. Or 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 some 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 six figure some maybe that that was something else I wanted to ask you about because I I'm pretty sure at the beginning of this documentary they say you know hey we're gonna make the Fantastic Four for a million dollars like on a million dollar budget and then almost immediately they interview someone who's like New Constantine's gonna put in seven hundred fifty thousand dollars and Roger Corman's gonna put in seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. And I'm like, that's one point five million. <laughs> so that's my question. I know in the documentary they talk a little bit about that Roger Corman's money, and this is something maybe I didn't understand completely, Roger Corman's money is with services, and so that's a little more variable or something like that. But yeah, the is that what you're getting at with well, this 1.5 versus 1 million that it doesn't really jive up? Well, what it is that they're not explaining it properly. And because the problem that you have people explaining this stuff from all different angles, because like, mm -hmm. like how we kind of talked about in other uh, series of November, people are giving different perspectives because they were involved at different time periods. And what they're doing is they're cross editing those together. Okay. So, because from what I've been able to understand, I could be wrong. This is an interpretation, but considering this documentary is one of the few really, like, much like uh, the death of Superman lives, what happened? It's like this is kind of at this current time the definitive piece of media on mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah, there's no book. There's no. I, I feel you could probably write a nice book on this better than the documentary did. But from what my understanding is, is that Bert Eichinger went to Roger Corman's production company and said, I want you to make this. So what it is is that I guess by being the per the production studio of it, Roger Corman is hired by Burt Eichinger, produces the film, and yet somehow they make the comment later on saying, oh, then Burt Eichinger bought the film right, bought the film print back from Roger Corman, which doesn't make sense because if Roger Corman was just hired as essentially to make the film, Burt Eichinger owns the film. He is paying, he's solely yeah. just paying them to make this. It's yeah. kind of like if, if, if Rob, Rob's a musician, I pay him money as an artist to make me the song. If, if he's just essentially a uh, employee, not an employee, but he's being, is an independent contractor of mine, I own it. He just brought my, my creation to fruition. He does not own it. Only thing that could happen, which I think they do, I think it's very low key understated, is that I think by being the, I think they say something like, uh, uh, Bert Eichinger licensed part of the film rights to Roger Corman. Yeah, something which, like that. Which I don't know how you could do without getting Marvel's approval. Mm -hmm. Like if you if you want to sell the option to someone, I would imagine, or maybe you don't. I don't know exactly. I would imagine Marvel probably has some say in it. They might have very little say 
as yeah. long as it's not like you're selling it to I don't know like a group of neo Nazis who plan on reinterpreting it as a as a, a propaganda. That people are like, okay, we can we can legally step in. Yeah, but but considering that Roger Corman has a solid track record with this, there's probably nothing they can do. Mm-hmm. So I that's a weird thing. It's not explained properly, or at least it's not laid out clearly. Which, considering that it's kind of like you had only one job, and your whole job is to lay this out very clearly. Uh, like Rob said, the 1.5, that's mentioned in my book that was published 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that's true, considering that we have two different sources that are saying it. I think the million dollars was probably the production budget. Yeah, that was what, what I think really my question was going to be. Is it something that like 1 million went to the movie, 500K went to the advertising or something like that? Which is hard. Which is another weird thing to say because what adver- there was no they they make a very big point in this in saying that the actors basically paid out of pocket to advertise this. Yeah, yeah. So like I, that's like again, out of all of November, this is the weakest because I re- you really like I Rob like Rob Ray stated I am deeply in the weeds with this sort of stuff. I love mm-hmm. when you get into the tentacle aspects. Again, I'm the uh, the mindless philosopher when it comes to dissecting what could happen in the movie business. <laughs> I am an amateur expert, much like I am on Titanic, so I don't know for certain though. But considering how much I like this, and I have a amateur expert knowledge, uh, understanding of this, you're an amateur. I, you're an amateur analyst with expert intentions. What about that? I like that, but unfortunately, it's too wordy. Um, <laughs> it's it's like four more words than yours. There you go. Well, thank you, thank you. You've doubled it. Uh, but, but back to the original point though it's like I, I don't have a grasp on this i think i have a better grasp than i've ever had before but that's not saying much okay okay well you know i agree with i agree with you and i'm glad to hear that that you were as maybe mm, confused by this documentary as i was because that's how i really felt i didn't really understand you know kind of maybe the point that they were going for an overall point it seemed somewhat disjointed at certain parts of it. And there was something that I noticed actually during the credits of the documentary that um, I wanted to bring up. In the credits, there's a rather large list of Indiegogo contributors. So did you know that this was an Indiegogo, like a, a crowdfunded film? Yeah, yeah. This, 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 was a, this was a Kickstarter film, much like Death of Superman Lives and I don't think Jodorowsky's doing a lost soul or crowdfunded, but yeah, this was definitely part of that. They were I, all, I, I know they were always fun. I know to this day, because I still follow them on Facebook, they're constantly trying to just like fundraise and be like, oh, if you donate like $30, you'll get the DVD and the poster. I know to this day, they're still trying to fundraise. Okay. This was a big fundraising project. I think that kicks, things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and that crowdfunding fundraising stuff is great. You know, everybody should be able to create... But of course, when you do that, you know, there's no real filter for the great, the people who are creating great things and the people who are creating mediocre things. And I think this is an example of some people who just wanted to make a movie, a documentary, not necessarily make it the best documentary possible. And they got the money and they were able to do it. You know, I I think that aspect, you know, weighs heavily on my opinion as to why maybe this documentary is so disjointed or so confusing. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, 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 it's, it's weird like that. This is one of those ones where I, A plus intent, like clearly they wanted to bring this story to the forefront. This was one of those, 
oh god it's it, when it comes to pop culture nerdy circles it's always been one of those things like oh my it's kind of like with nicholas cage being superman it's like did you know there was a fantastic four movie that was never released <laughs> yeah it's, it's just one of those things where if you're a nerd you have to know about this to some degree mm-hmm. but considering that much how, like i said with uh john schnepp's death of superman lives and i'm like i can't imagine anybody really delving into that again being like oh let's redo this or let's write a book let's do something to kind of really get even more information with this i could see very easily a couple years maybe five from now someone's like okay let's do a definitive telling of this sure i and considering that none of the actors in this are very high profile the only thing i have to say that might be a death nail to this or maybe being redone again is that one of the key players in this and this oddly enough we're talking about this the day after he died now that Stan Lee's no longer around, um, and considering that he was somebody that clearly at that time, even though he wasn't like he was back during the 60s and 70s, he definitely was sat there, had more of an interest in this at the time. And now that he's gone. Yeah. And I don't think he's like in the documentary, they show one or two clips of him talking about this, but he didn't really speak a lot about it, especially toward the later years in his life. Uh, but no, considering that he's gone now you've lost out on part of this. Burke Eichinger is gone. And the only person that's left is Avi Arad. And they, and they, and this is the one thing I got to give this documentary credit for is they do have the title cards that say, we did try to reach this person yeah. and they never got back to us. Yeah. Th- don't th- they that, say they tried to reach him for 18 months. <laughs> yeah. I think he'd know that, that a story about this would not paint him in a great light. Yeah. And I think he realized, you know what? Uh, my name is more or less mud in the in the nerd marvel community mm-hmm. why why add some fuel to that fire <laughs> yeah absolutely fair point fair point but uh but no so okay so rob wasn't too thrilled with this i uh execution wise i'm not too thrilled with it i think now that i've watched it and i really pay attention to it because it's weird because as i was watching this and were things like Lost Soul, I guess when you look at Lost Soul, Lost Soul makes it really makes it look real easy. And you're like, oh, yeah. And it's like, okay, because you're just cross-cutting between all these different perspectives about the same event. And considering that all these people had a very unique take on what was going on during that movie's production. Yeah. You you look at this, and what I realize what the filmmaker does, or I guess it what or I guess it's more the interview, the interviewees. Mm-hmm. is they're sitting there talking and i think it happens a few times it's really it's the guy who plays reed richards what was his name alex hyde white who oh yeah he's who, the character <laughs> oh well, yeah he, I have everybody he's the most candid and i think he for whatever reason he, he he knows the most about this or at least that's how he comes across yeah. but he'll be in the middle of laying out the story as to what happened during something some aspect of production and then he'll just make a hard left turn to a tangent where he's like, did you know on this, that this is, this is, this happened. And it's like, Oh God, there goes your pacing. Yeah. And, and, and I can respect that in a way because we do that in the podcast where we'll be like talking like, Oh, this and be like, Hey Rob, did you hear that? That something happened? Like (laughs) Avengers four is not coming out until July now. What are you talking about? We never do that. We are the most, on topic people in the universe, Zach. <laughs> Laser focused podcast. Laser focused. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Laser focused. But laser precision. Laser precision. Let's talk podcast. about this phrase for half an hour. <laughs> let's let's debate the semantics of laser focus and, and uh, precision. Uh, 
but that's what happens. Like they'll be like, and it's not just him. I think it happens with the guy who what was his name, Joseph Culp, who was Doctor Doom. Yeah, they'll be in the middle of telling a story about the production, and be like, "Oh, while I was wearing the mask, I couldn't." hear. It's like, oh my god, and and, and maybe that's more the fact. What should have happened was that the director, when interviewing these people, be like, "Okay, we'll we'll get to your personal anecdotes mm-hmm. after we lay out the story." Because I know you can't, again, somebody who has to edit two podcasts, I know what it's like trying to edit around something like that and trying to make it sound coherent. So sometimes it's just better. It might come across incoherent, but at least, um, excuse me, it at least comes across as coherent, though, but it might be a little, the pacing might go off the rails a little. So I I understand uh, coming from that perspective, but Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, God, when you're trying to lay out a story that's convoluted, like this, where it's like, because it's weird. Like, why? Like the whole premise of the movie is Roger Corman made eight hundred and something films. How many of them weren't released? Mm-hmm. Just one. Yeah. And you're trying to lay out why. And by the end of this film, there's no definitive answer. Like, there is a definitive answer, but it's not really with a, a period or with an exclamation mark. It's just like, oh, this. I, I, I the whole like Rob said throughout the entire documentary, they're like, oh, this wasn't released for because it was rights holder. And at the very end, it's like, like in a text. Uh, what white text on a black background? It's mm-hmm. like Avi Arad said he burned the print, and I'm yeah. like, whoa, 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 whoa! That's like, a big jump. <laughs> that, that is a that like when you're talking about lost media, that is a huge bombshell to say something was intentionally destroyed. Mm-hmm. Because like, and that's one of those ones where even like I remember the first time I watched that, I'm like, that is a like I don't care if it's true or not. I, I, it could be a fabrication. It could be photographs of of Avi Arad having a barbecue one year. And it's 4th of July that instead of uh, um, charcoal stones, he used the Fantastic Four print. It's to sit there, just drop that on the audience, mm-hmm. to say something was de- – like the master copy was destroyed. Yeah. Uh, like, like that's – like give a little bit of the background with, with film history though, like where we just talked about Freaked. And that – like where the, the, the original negative for Freaked is more or less understood to be gone, mm-hmm. whether it just got thrown out or it's in a vault somewhere. It's more or less lost. But what helped was that Freak was in theaters. Not many, but it did have, they did uh, duplicate prints. Yeah. So you do have a handful of prints out there. That's some, that happens with a lot of films that are considered lost, is that somebody finds a print in a closet, or I think there's one story that I think, I forget where it was. There was some, there was some movie, I forget what it was, they found it in a castle. Um, <laughs> there's a really weird place that nobody should, it shouldn't have been there, and it was there for some reason. And But the thing about something like this, though, is that there wouldn't have been prints made of this. Mm-hmm. So there's there's maybe the original negative and at most maybe five duplicates, yeah. maybe. And if, if it's true what they said that Roger Corman just handed them all over sometime in the, in the mid-90s, there's no reason to believe that just for convenience sake, the additional prints were dumped in, the, in a dumpster somewhere. And someone just held on to the negative just for that reason. Let's just, let's, it's better to have it and not have it out in the public. Just Absolutely. in case somebody goes dumpster diving and finds it one day. Yep. Um, and especially, and also the terminology too, because one of the only ways to, tr- it's again, it's not that he said he threw the print away. It's the fact by saying you incinerated it. Mm-hmm. That means, again, you, you can always, if something, something gets thrown in a garbage can, there's always a chance someone found it. There's, there's always a chance someone can find something that was thrown out. But if you burn something, is, is anybody knows, that means more or less it's gone forever. Yep. And I think that, and that's a weird, again, like I said, that's probably my biggest problem with this documentary after the fact that its pacing is all over the place 
is that you cannot drop a bombshell on audience like that. A, in the way they did. The execution of that is horrible, where you just have white text on a black background, and then have not one of your actors, not one of your interview subjects, not have any of the production crew comment on it. Mm-hmm. Like that, I guess that that royally drives me nuts. Uh, and because the guy who directed this apparently is a a film professor somewhere, oh. and I'm shocked that even he didn't realize. Like maybe he found it out after the fact. I don't know. Um, but he, again, to drop that on audience like that is definitely, especially like, I don't know. It's, it, it drives me nuts. Yeah, I have to agree that you know it was it was jarring definitely when you're watching this and you kind of you know you're confused certainly by that point because you know they go we made the movie like the whole movie starts with this movie wasn't supposed to be made and then we made the movie and then oh they they let it languish in post and then we started advertising it and then they shelved it and then they burned it and it's like what is going on like the movie seems to contradict itself as it goes along. Yeah, and I think I think that's the issue because in my book, and again, it, it, it sums up the entire story in about two pages. Mm-hmm. And the story basically is was that they wanted to make uh, someone wanted to hang on to the rights, and it was used which is temporary. But my issue with that, and, and the only interesting point that's made during all this, is that I think it's Alex Hyde White that says. Christopher in my book mentions this. Christopher Columbus starts sniffing around this mm-hmm. in the mid nineties, and they got because re- I think that's what it was. Because they they mention a let me see if I can dig it out. Um, they mentioned that there was a plan A and a plan B for this movie. <laughs> um, let's see where was is, it? Is Chris Columbus the one who eventually oh. did direct the Fantastic Four movie that came out? No, it was no? not him. Okay, who no, did? I, forget, you I think know? Tim Story. Tim Story. I think okay, did. I don't. I have no clue. Plan A essentially was Burt Eichinger makes the film and uses it as leverage to try to get a good deal out of a major Hollywood studio. Okay. He, he, he wanted to say, look what I have. I have the rights. Um, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And the plan B was, according to the book, release the film, which they fully intend to do on January 19th, 1994, at Minneapolis, charity premiere devoted to children's causes. Yeah. And then suddenly word got around that Eichinger had paid Concord Pictures – Roger Corman, $1 million to buy back the negative of the film in order to shelve it permanently. And that's kind of, like, that's in, in Michael, uh, Alex Hyde Pierce, no, oh God, Alex Hyde White essentially says, uh, it seems like the somebody starts sniffing around this and says, we don't want this tainting the well. Sure. And that's, like, that's why, I, again, if I, again, this is my own opinion being an outsider was that this was made with again the the plan a and b of plan a let's let's make this a to hold on to the rights that's priority number one mm-hmm. plan two if nobody sits there wants to make a fantastic four movie keep in mind at this time there had not been a single successful marvel film yeah. you had captain america you had the uh, the nick fury what's his name stuff whatever his name was the uh, hasselhoff you did, Blade was still years away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think James Cameron's Spider-Man was falling apart at this time, which is okay. I'm shocked that nobody's made one of these movies about James Cameron's Spider-Man. Yeah, shocked considering there's so much information on that. I think what, ha- and then they said, okay, if that does, if this, making this film doesn't work out, we're going to sit there, release it as a 
in, in a couple theaters, and then it'll show up on home video. We'll make an absolute fortune, and that'll be it. And then we'll just work on another one because he still has the rights. Again, he can make more movies. It's not like he can only make one, and then he's done. And then whatever it was, it was, oh, Christopher Columbus is involved with this. And it was, oh, crap, if this gets released, this might shy away people with money. Mm-hmm. I think I, – because, again, there's also the part of this, too, where you have Chris Gore, who has been around as a film journalist forever – um, he shows it's funny. You can always he, he was on G four a lot back in the day. And then he he shows yeah. up in different. He'll show up every once in a while. It's interesting to see what he does because he really is a weird sort of uh, gauge as to what's going on in Hollywood. Okay, and it seems like he was part of it too because there was another projection booth episode, uh, the podcast. They did an episode on this, and it wasn't as insightful as other episodes are. Mm-hmm. But from what he said, it was that like he was really the only like, if it was because he had a magazine which I think is coming back now. It's either come, come back or it's coming back. I don't know. They did like a whole cover story on this. And for the longest time, that was the only concrete information this thing ever existed. Okay. Because unless you have, and if you didn't have a copy of this, you didn't have any right. There's no record of it existing. Mm-hmm. This, this isn't like nowadays where you have like rogue star Wars, rogue one, where we have a whole first trailer of footage. that didn't show up in the final film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like when something like this happened back in the day, uh it was gone. It like y- you heard story like, you, it's like the Nicolas Cage Superman, like you'd hear stories about it, but it was it's not until recently that it moved from urban legend mm-hmm. to it actually existed at some Definitely. point. Definitely. At, at the very least a concept or a concrete concept. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So with that being said, okay, Rob is a – I think we've kind of delved into enough of the behind-the-scenes and trying to make sense of the production of this film. So yes. with what you saw, Rob, I know you are a big fan of the fan four stick. <laughs> from, from what you've seen, from what you saw in this documentary, what do you th- – I know you said you tried watching this, but from what you've been able to glean from this documentary, what do you make of the footage? Uh, it's – you know, it's it's – cheap it's lackluster i would say you know it's there you can tell it's the fantastic four the story's there at least you know the the part i did see of the of the unreleased version of the movie is definitely the fantastic four you know it's before they get their powers but it's it's their story um but you know it's it's of a lower quality of course than the movies we do have but at the same time, and maybe what Zach might be looking for more in this answer, I don't think they really do it justice again. Like, I don't think this movie got it right in any sense. You know what I mean? All right. Because I have a, like Zach said, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Fantastic Four. That was one of my favorite, you know, comic books, comic book stories when I was younger. Um, but uh, the Fantastic Four to me was always you know, kind of cartoonish, kind of, you know, that had that comedic vibe to it. And I think that all of them, all of these films that we have, Roger Corman's or Ole Sassone's uh, versus, you know, all the other ones we do have, they're all too serious. I don't think this was too serious. I think, oddly enough, from what I've seen of this, Mm -hmm. I'm not a Fantastic Four person by any means. But I think out of all these, this probably again as of now, who knows what's going to happen when Disney gets the rights to this? Yeah, I, I would imagine that's going to be one of those. They're going to hype that up so much. It's like we're like, after the what the fifth time's the charm. <laughs> uh, I guess that'll be the marketing tagline to that. It's like mm-hmm. uh, fourth time's the charm. I yeah. guess they'll ignore that this one ever existed. Sure. Uh, 
Like, that actually be a really clever marketing campaign. Fourth times the charm, <laughs> or, or four or four times the charm. Like that'd be a really clever like, mm. thing with the tie. Like oh, there's four characters, four movies. That would be uh, really good. Like that'd be a clever marketing tie. You know, most people wouldn't get it, but uh, no. From what I can gather, though, I think out of all the Fantastic Four movies, and again, I have not watched this one in its entirety though. But from what I can glean from the trailer and just like where Rob thinks it looks cheap and low rent. I think this film has the heart. Okay. That 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 like, like I said, I've never read any of the comics though. From what I've gathered from people who tell me about the comics a lot of Fantastic Four, I think this one gets understands the heart of the family of what they are mm-hmm. more than probably the Jessica Alba and clearly the Josh Trank Fant Four stick. Okay, I like that we only know the the middle one is as Jessica Alba's Fantastic Four. <laughs> well, that's actually what it is. It's like, like nobody's walking around saying the Michael Chiklis Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows Michael Chiklis from Spirited Away more than Fantastic Four, right? I think so. In the Rob <laughs> universe, anyway. Oh, which which is the real universe? In case anybody was wondering. <laughs> We're gonna get in trouble. Let's just get out of here. Don't worry. You've got daddy here. He's got credit cards and cash. That's one of the, the things with this movie. It's like, okay. I think there's also, I, I think there's another way you could have sold this documentary too. Is that like, you could say there's almost like a curse on the Fantastic Four now when it comes to movies. Mm-hmm. Because I remember when I saw that first Fantastic Four movie, I did not see it in theaters. I, I, I have it on DVD somewhere. And I remember watching it and just being really bored by it. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think anything happens in that movie until like they don't use their powers really like as like the Fantastic Four until like the last five minutes of the movie. Okay, because I remember like like the climax of the movie is just like Doctor Doom on a street and they just look like like team up on them and that's it. Yeah, I remember. And then that. the second movie, it's that again. <laughs> but but Galactus is kind of outside in space too. That's yes, the twist. And, and Lawrence Fishburne is the Silver Server. Mm-hmm. And then obviously in Fan Forstick, um, like like Fan Forstick is obviously gonna be something we have to talk about sooner rather than later. I don't but, think I've. I still don't think I've seen that movie. Oh man, it's you know, I, if there honestly, ever was a slam dunk of a cinematic in Zack world. In the Zack universe, that is a slam dunk of a cinematic. If there is one way, I'm kind of on the fence if I've seen this movie or not, because I have vague memories. Zack's going to love this. This might be a cinematic in and of itself, how I think I watched this movie. I'm pretty sure I was on an airplane once where they had like the TVs in the backs of the seats, but I didn't have my TV on. I was listening to my own music. But someone in the seat in front of me that I could see through, like, the crevice of the seats had the Josh Trank Fantastic Four on, and I, like, watched them watch it without audio. I think that might have happened. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, and that sounds like something Rob would... Like, that sounds like how most people would, would interact with this movie, is watching it kind of secondhand over someone's shoulder. Yeah, I watched somebody else watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, yeah I, I believe that. Okay, okay. I like the point you're making about about this one, that it kind of maybe catches the heart better than the others. I think it does, because I think there is a... There's a there's a offbeat, but, but heartfelt charm. There's, okay. there's like a quirky charm to the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. 
that I think this movie encompasses, or at least what's what's shown in the, in the marketing for it, what little yeah. marketing there is for it. Yeah. And I think that's there where I don't think you can make a Fantastic Four movie properly by just giving somebody $200 million and saying, go make this. Definitely. Like, I think, and what's the old adage is like, The Incredibles is the best Fantastic Four movie ever made. <laughs> and that's kind of what it is, is that at the end of the day, the Fantastic Four aren't about their superpowers. They're about the fact that just they're a bunch of people that just are family Mm-hmm. And there's this perpetual friction amongst them. Yeah, but at the end of the day, they learn they have to get like, like they are family. They have to put their differences aside to fight the the greater bad or the big bad. Mm-hmm. And like, so I, I don't I don't know how you make a a Marvel MCU film. I mean, people think of Fantastic Four. And this is not to go to like Fant Force and things like that though. But they, everybody has a very clear idea of what Reed Richards looks like, yeah. what Sue Storm looks like, uh, Ben Grimm. I think the only one you probably have the most uh, fluidity with is probably Johnny. Mm-hmm. And that's like when they cast Michael B. Jordan. It's like Johnny Storm. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm like, that's cool. I'm like, that makes sense. But then obviously you get like, you get the, the angry man babies. They're like, well, then Sue Storm has to be black. And it's like, well, I, I guess. I'm like, you could. And like, the, 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 the thing about Fan Forstick was they tried to have their cake and eat it too. They're like, no, we're going to ca- cast a pretty white actress. And it's like, oh, she'll be adopted. And it's like, oh dear lord! So, so they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, and yeah. it's like again, that's the thing about Sue Storm. But Sue Storm is supposed to be really pretty. It's another one of the Marvel archetypes of uh, Reed Richards is the dorky, sciency guy with a female mm-hmm. that's way out of his league. It's the weird thing with the Jessica Alba movie where it's like, oh, we'll make Jessica Alba a scientist. And nothing against Jessica Alba though, but I'm pretty sure when I think of her, I do not think of science. And that's nothing <laughs> against her. I, I think it's not that she can't act that way. Mm-hmm. It's just that at the time in the mid two thousands, she was a sex symbol. Yeah, it's kind of like I think what was it? Uh, uh, what, what James Bond was it? Where Denise Richards plays like a scientist, like oh, it was like Doctor yeah. Christmas or something, or Christmas <laughs> Jones or something. Christmas Jones, yeah. It's like oh, God, I, not again. I, I don't think anyone's going to say uh, Denise Richards is a great actress, but it's like again, nothing against these actresses though. But it's like when something when, when an actress or an actor is cast as a sex or is known as a sex symbol at the time. That is a really far leap to go from that mm-hmm. to, oh, they're a scientist now. Yeah. And you can do that. Like, look at Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron's been a, a sex symbol for how many years? And they clearly, she's, she can transform to anything if she puts her mind to it. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, it's the, the filmmakers behind it. But the, the 2005, I, I think out of all the Fantastic Four live action films, considering that there's four of them, I think the, the mid-2000s ones are the most flawed out of all of them. Okay, okay. I you think those are the an, worst. You bring up an interesting point, you know, when, when we talk about maybe not comparing these Fantastic Four movies, but discussing the creation of a Fantastic Four movie. I think you said something like, you know, you can't just throw $200 million at it and expect a great ad- adaptation. And... I guess that that's part of my issue is that I when I see you know something about Roger Corman's Fantastic Four and I and I see it as cheap or low budget, the um, one of the I think it's uh, David Hyde White or Alex Hyde White whatever his name is, <laughs> he says it kind of perfectly sums it up perfectly in the documentary. He says something like um, you know you have to be really good to work under Roger Corman, you know, to work on a budget, like as an actor, at least you have to be 
technically good to work under his budget and his time constraints. And that's an interesting perspective. And that's something that, you know, you can't say about any of the other Fantastic Four movies, that they did have limitations in some sense when they were shooting it. Right? Oh, oh, definitely. I want to record that at one point Rob said David Hyde White, and I said Alex Hyde Pierce. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want it on record that we've both mistaken him for David Hyde Pierce now. I want it on record. Perfect. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, I think Rob makes a really good point there, is that that's kind of what you have to you have to have that sort of mindset when you're going into these things with the people you're working with. It's like, it's, it's sometimes it's not as clear cut as like, okay, we have a great script. We have this, there are, and that's part of the thing with Holly. I think it's Sylvester Stallone at one point made the, uh, analogy of like making a movie in Hollywood. It's kind of like putting a tuxedo on in the dark. Okay. It's like, it, it only happens one out of a hundred times that you put on the tuxedo a hundred percent and everything looks right. <laughs> so when that does happen, Hollywood's like, do it again. To do it exactly again, don't change a single thing in how you did it. And I think that's kind of that doesn't work with certain properties where you haven't figured it out just yet. Like, and that's kind of what happened with a Fantastic Four and the Rise of the Silver Surfer. It was like, oh, let's just do it again. Well, it didn't really work well the first time. Yeah. And and then it's like, okay, so that happens, and you get Fan Four stick. Where it's like, okay, pe- and then you get the weird sort of like, it's funny, in retrospect now, we can kind of look back, but when that was getting made the same time period when Man of Steel came out, and you have a, a Superman that's homicidal <laughs> and and megalomaniacal, yet in that same like uh, creative space, you have a Fantastic Four that's dark and gritty. Yeah. And it's like, oh, clearly this was still part of that Dark Knight uh, oh god what would we even call that I, I don't think there's a name for it <laughs> but that sort of like deconstruction of, of, of the heroes mythos where it's like mm-hmm. oh heroes now have to be dragged into the dirt in order for them to be heroic yeah and it's like or I, I, guess, I guess it's deconstructing the heroes I guess that's one way of calling it because that's what happens with Batman v Superman 2 um, with our 9-11 imagery in the superhero film yeah. uh, <laughs> but no like, I think <laughs> I think well again where fan four stick works and we'll get to the exit that that's coming sooner or later folks. It's on the long I, short list. No, that's on the short short list. That's it's, oh okay. Short there's list. a very real possibility that we talk about that in the next few months. Very oh, real possibility. Okay, okay. Unless I change my mind again, or, or we have Feb Stober or uh, <laughs> Jan Stober or March Stober or Brando. Was it Brando O Stober? <laughs> Brando O Stober. Yeah. Or the extra O syllable, but. I don't know how you make a Fantastic Four movie. I, I think now what they, if they they are if they are to make this, I think it, it would automatically be plugged in as a, oh, Reed Richards is doing something, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be the family thing would come second. I think they'd be, it'd be like Black Panther. They would be introduced in an Avengers movie or a Captain America Civil War. They'd be introduced that way, mm-hmm. so they're not the focus. Yeah. And then when they are the focus, then you'll start getting a little bit more of the the drama and the family. Yeah. Think- oh, that's such a good point. I could totally see there's some, you know, scene in an Avengers movie where Tony Stark is like, oh, wait, I need to talk to Reed Richards because he, you know, excels at this specific type of shit we're looking at, you know, some nonsense to get him involved and then tease the others, you know? That's that's what I think they would do. They would or you'd have Sue Storm. In the background, or something yeah. like I, I, I don't know how they would do it, considering that Marvel really hates 
what's the word origin stories now they really don't like origin stories which i'm well, glad i have yeah you're right i'm thinking because i i think i've said it to zach before maybe i've said it not to zach but other people um you know what is what is the Marvel Universe going to do after Thanos? Because Thanos, is, of course, is one of the big bad villains of the Marvel Universe. I I've said it before. Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom is one of like the strongest characters in the Marvel Universe. He could certainly be the next villain. And if they you know have a scene in an Avengers movie where you get to see Reed Richards and Victor Von Doom, you know, like working together on something, that's going to be the perfect Marvel setup. Oh, definitely. Because again, not to get too far into MCU Marvel nonsense. But there's there's so much now they they they're able to crack the cosmic part of it. Yeah. There's like again there's the Thanos. Like, this is from the few comics I've actually read. Like then there's the Thanos imperative, where you have Star Lord and Nova go off and die. You have to have to bring Thanos back to life. Um, you have the the Celestials. You have the Cancerverse. You have like all these beings like Galactus and all that being like, oh, and this is probably what they're going to get into because I know they're doing the Eternals next. The Eternals are coming. Oh, okay. Which is supposed to be the what, what the gods of the universe. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that that makes some sense with Stan Lee passing away because I know that one of the Eternals is basically like Jack Kirby in comic book form. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I, I don't know how they're going to do it. Like, that's another part of the Marvel universe I have no idea about. Mm-hmm. But I know, like with the Thanos thing, what's going to happen? And this is not, and, and that's the fun. That's the fun thing about this uh, uh, Fox deal is that if anybody thought Marvel was running out of ideas with, with Thanos, they weren't. Like, like, yeah. like, they weren't with Thanos. Now, <laughs> oh my lord, the, the gates are just wide open, and there's it's the new frontier. It's, I know. I'm just my fingers are crossed. I want to see the Savage Land in the Marvel Universe, which is when there's a little pocket of like space dimension in Antarctica where there's still dinosaurs. That's what I want to see: dinosaurs in the Marvel Universe. I, that's the weird thing, though, with with Marvel and the Fantastic Four now, is because when we do eventually get them, they are not going to be hokey. Mm-hmm. I think that's another key component of the Roger Corman movie that the other ones don't have. I think the 2005 one tries really hard to do this and it fails in the process. But the Fantastic Four are hokey. Yeah, yeah, they have that that little bit of comedy that camp to them. Yep. Yeah, and I think well, I think they're well, yeah. They're, I don't want to say camp, hokey. Okay. They're cheesy. They're they're hokey. They're that's cheesy. What, yeah, cheesy is a good way to put it. Yep. And the problem though is that, and I think that might be an issue that Marvel will have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't to this day you don't hear any stories about there being another Fantastic Four even when because Fox still technically owns them. Okay. Every once in a while, someone will mention Fant Stick Two, which is kind of just like a joke at this point. It's like, yeah, huh? You're you're gonna make a sequel <laughs> to a movie that lost that lost to sixty million dollars. <laughs> but to this day, I don't think anybody would be on board with a hokey Fantastic Four movie. I, I don't yeah. see how audiences because even when you look at something like The Incredibles. Uh, I, I know Rob and I kind of argued about this back in like what June about like I want to do the Incredibles and Rob's like no we have to do both if we're going to do just one yeah <laughs> and, and I watched the second one oh okay a few days a few weeks ago and I watched it and like there's a whole scene in that movie and it's cute like there's certain po- points in that movie because it's like oh Elastigirl is like it'd be the new face of the superheroes mm-hmm. and Mister Fantastic's like stuck at home raising the kids I'm like oh that's a cute dynamic because I think it takes place in the sixties sure. And I'm like, okay, that's cute. But then, like, out of nowhere, like, there's, like, a ten-minute scene where the baby, like, attacks a raccoon. Okay. And that goes on for ten minutes. <laughs> and, and, like, I know Rob doesn't pay attention to this stuff, mm-hmm. but 
during this during the summer because like Incredibles two made like some ridiculous sum of money. Yeah, yeah. And during the summer, the only thing people talked about from that movie was the baby raccoon sequence. Oh. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's mm. literally a five minute gag sequence. And it's like, oh, like the Incredibles is probably the best version of the Fantastic Four you're gonna get that people like swallow and actually mm-hmm. like it. And yet the only thing we're gonna talk about from this is the fact that the baby attacked a raccoon at one point. Sure, okay. And I'm like, oh like and that's the only thing though, is that like Marvel is not gonna make a a hokey campy cheesy fantastic four they're gonna be reed richards is gonna have a like in this kind of thing too there's a very real possibility that reed richards inherits like who knows robert downey jr's mantle in the mcu yeah i, I still i still think they're gonna have to pry uh rdj's dead hands off his grasp <laughs> on tony stark uh but i think there's a possibility they do that that's how they integrate him into this but like Rob said, there's a very yeah. real chance that we get something like, oh, I have to, like, oh, I hear, it's going to be like what happened in the Ant-Man when they, like, they very low-key introduced Spider-Man, where they're like, oh, I know a guy, climbs on walls. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be something like that, where it's like, oh, I know a guy, uh, knows a lot about the negative zone. And, yeah. like, and the audience will go, oh, God, he's talking about Woody Richards. Oh, my God. Like, and you'll hear, like, the hushed whispers <laughs> across the audience opening night. And then, like, like Rob said, like, a year from there, Tony Stark will be in, like, New York, and it's, like, Baxter Building. I've lived here for six, for 30 years, and I don't know where the Baxter Building is. Yeah. And, that, and that's, and it'd be like, oh, God. Or, like, the only thing I have to say, though, and this, is, this ties into the history of the Fantastic Four in my mm-hmm. book. Because the book, as like I said, I had the chapter on Fantastic Four. Only two pages is devoted to Roger Corman's thing. Okay. Was that back during the, I think it was the early 2000s. Peyton Reed, director of the Citizen Kane of Cheerleader films, Bring It On, and <laughs> Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp, was actually in line to direct the Fantastic Four. Oh. And his his and this is right when Kevin Feige was like kind of getting started in Marvel. Like this is right when like he started to actually like get some I guess some sway over things. Because he okay. was fun thing, Kevin Feige, who's now the mastermind of the MCU, was the protege of Avi Arad. Mm-hmm. And back during 2003 was when Kevin Feige was involved with the pre-production on Hulk or Ang Lee's Hulk. Yeah. And um, oh my god, what's the other one that came out? Daredevil. And what happened was Peyton Reed was going to direct directing the movie for 20th Century Fox, starring I think I know Ewan McGregor. I forget the other whoever the actress was. It was some rom com that okay. was going to be like. Fox is like a moneymaker, like rom-com moneymaker for the summer of 2003. <laughs> and it outright bombed. He got pulled <laughs> off of it immediately. Mm-hmm. But his story treatment was, Peyton Reed, was it was going to be a period piece. Mm. Where the the origin story, or the movie was going to basically take place in the 60s. Okay. And considering with the MCU and how we know with the Fantastic Four in the Negative Zone... And think about it, the Fantastic Four haven't been around, and what they're doing with Captain Marvel, and that Captain Marvel takes place during the 90s, so it's like, yeah. oh, where's where has she been for the last 20 years? Mm-hmm. I think there's a very real chance that Kevin Feige has that script laying around somewhere, or at very least the outline. I wouldn't be surprised if the origin story for the Fantastic Four is they're in the negative zone. 
or I'm sorry, that film ends with them being in the negative zone. Yeah. And whether it's through the the retconning, the time travel retconning of Infinity War Part 2, or whatever plot device they decide to use, that's how they're brought in. They some Tony Stark does something as part of Avengers 4, and it's going to reset the entire timeline, mm-hmm. going all... Because, we again, this is going to be in between... Because think about it, the very first film chronologically in, in the in-universe timeline of the MCU is Captain America, the first Avenger. Yeah. So if you were going to have uh, Fantastic Four in the 60s, you would have people like, uh, what was her name? Haley Atwell's Peggy yeah. Carter, uh, Howard Stark floating around. You'd have Hank Pym maybe in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you could say, oh, Reed Richards was like the day, like the, the first S.H.I.E.L.D. meeting was there. And on his way home, no one ever saw him again. Okay. You yeah, could do something yeah. like that where now that because because everybody's assuming Captain America is going to die in this film or he's going to be removed from the timeline mm-hmm. or he, he's going to disappear. Chris, what's his name? Chris Evans. So I think maybe they could make the the Fantastic Four the new people at a time. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't know. Or maybe they were in a, maybe the negative zones like a mirror dimension where everything advances normally, but they're brought back in this dimension. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But I think that's, and I know we're getting really off topic here from from Roger Corman, though. But I think the <laughs> ultimate goal is like, how do you? Like, I think because we have this final film product, there's not as much speculation on our part. Yeah. So there is kind of this whole idea of considering that there has been four Fantastic Four films, and not one of them has clicked with the public. How is it ever going to work? Yeah. How is it ever going to work? And considering how every single time they do this and it doesn't work, you poison the well even more. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how many mulligans do you get until eventually you're like, you know what? I can put my money into something else and it'll probably work out better. Well, I would imagine, I know it's a little different, but I would imagine they're looking at it in maybe somewhat a little like Spider-Man. Of course, Spider-Man, I wouldn't say, you know, were the failures that the Fantastic Four movies were, but, you know, Spider-Man got had its, you know, of course, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, now the MCU version of Spider-Man. Maybe they're kind of seeing it the same way, that, that Spider-Man reviving that character was a proof of concept almost, and now they think they can go for it for Fantastic Four. That'd be really interesting. Well, I think the thing about Spider-Man was, and Spider-Man is, like you said, a different case, because Spider-Man is essentially the Mickey Mouse of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you and, you and the movies the movies didn't really well. The second Amazing Spider-Man was pretty bad, right? But that the whole Andrew Garfield thing was more of a behind the scenes than a box office issue, if I understand well, it. Correctly. Yeah. Oh no, th- those those Amazing Spider-Man movies made money. The problem is they cost a lot of money to make. Yeah. But the thing with those movies was it was it was a timing issue because 2010, uh, Sam Raimi walks away from Spider-Man Four. The entire mm-hmm. The entire cast at that point walks away with him. And so it's reboot time. Yeah. And and what happened is that Spider-Man 4 was supposed to come out May of 2011. And Thor, Thor quickly takes that, that spot. It's the first movie of the summer. Mm-hmm. And so once Spider-Man 4 goes out the window, Sony go, that sets Sony back like a, like a year or so. And they're like, okay, we have to re-basically do it from the ground up. And the problem, though, is that when that Amazing Spider-Man movie came out, it came out two months after the Avengers. Okay. So you had a lot of you had a lot of uh, filthy casuals saying, "Why is Spider-Man in here in the Avengers? He's in New York." <laughs> and so that created the, the demand of we want Spider-Man in this universe. Yeah. 
And in considering that everybody thinks uh, Avengers is Marvel, Spider-Man's Marvel, then what's the problem? And that was kind of the thing. What was happening was that people were... And that's what happened eventually with uh, both Amazing Spider-Mans. It happened with uh, Fan Four Stick, was that a lot of these films are seen as... Um, knockoffs mm-hmm. even though there's they are still marvel properties they're seen as off-brand in a way yeah because by the point that by the time that they were released the marvel cinematic universe was in full swing had its fans and when they get something that isn't in that they feel a little you know yeah disappointed it's, exactly it's 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 a weird it's a weird phenomenon that marvel has yeah and, and nobody to this day has cracked it because if they have everybody would be making a fortune that's the difference, though, is that there was that demand. Like, I remember when that, that first uh, Captain America Civil War trailer came out and the final shot is of Spider-Man landing on top of the roof of the car. Yeah. And that was just like – and somebody – I forget who it was. Someone made the comment saying, you know that, that that trailer was good when people are excited for the third iteration of Spider-Man in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. When that and, gets someone excited, that's a big feat. <laughs> exactly. The third iteration of a character. And especially one that was his beloved. It's funny. And to this day, people still associate Tobey Maguire is Spider-Man to a lot of people still. Where it's just like yeah. Tobey Maguire is Spider-Man. It's kind of like James Bond at this point. He was he was the the first, or not even the first. He was the, he's just the most identifiable because mm-hmm. um, it just the, the it was everywhere back during the two thousands. We're talking about Roger Moore, right? Well, <laughs> there's somebody out there that equates with him solely as James Bond. Uh, but I think that's the thing where Fantastic Four is different in that no, there is like people like I grew up with the Tobey Maguire Spider Mans. Yeah, there's some kid out there that grew up with the Andrew Garfield Spider Mans. There's someone who grew up with the '90s cartoon Spider Man. Uh, there's somebody who grew up with the '60s animated cartoon. There's people who grew up just with the comics of Spider Man. I think what it is is that with Fantastic Four, you have the people who grew up with the comics. In a handful that grew up with the animated show in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And those are really few and far in between those people. So the only people that really have a concrete idea or even sort of any affinity for these characters are those who sought it out. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I think Spider-Man's different where I think you all you have to do is walk into a grocery store and you're hit over the head with some level of Spider-Man imagery. Definitely. That's a, a huge image. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's the dilemma. With Fantastic Four is that there, it's in a weird sort of gray space where okay. it's like, well, nobody really cares about this, which is good because then we can do what we want. Like we, we're not really beholden to any specific part of the lore. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, nobody cares about this. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, I know to this day there's arguments. Like it's kind of like what happened with um Superman and the the red trunks on his suit. It's like there are people out there that absolutely despise the fact of having the the cheesy costumes. Yeah, definitely. And that's and that's a hundred percent tied to their identity. The giant four on their costumes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, their costumes are you know they have to be tied to them because you know their costumes have to you know adjust to their powers. Like Sue Storm's costume has to go invisible when she does. Reed Richards' costume has to be able to stretch. Yeah, they're they're hand in hand. Yeah, and that's and, and think about. It. You look at the MCU, and everybody has a gritty, real... It's funny. You look at the MCU, and everybody dresses the same. Everybody wears boots. Everybody has... like Everybody's costumes, you can tell, are made out of the same sort of fabrics. Yeah. Yet, how do you... Like, how do you do that for Fantastic Four? Like, 
Captain America can't. I think just now, I think the rumor for Infinity War Part Two is that we're finally going to get the sequin like breastplate for Captain America. Oh, okay. We're finally going to get that, and that was always considered one of the cheesiest aspects of that costume. <laughs> and like, how, how do you make a Fantastic Four costume that's that's true to what the spirit of the Fantastic Four are, but isn't cheesy? Yeah, that's that's the question, you know, and that's. that's I'm, I'm sure there's people, you know, at Marvel Studios right now working on this exact problem if they oh, yeah. haven't done so already. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where I know, like, even like in the projection booth episode, there were like, Chris Gore, who was the, I think they say in the documentary, was the on set journalist. Mm-hmm. And he was taking like stills for like for his magazine. And he said, like, the actress that, like, the costume for the actress of Sue Storm, he says it was one of the most unflattering things he's ever seen. <laughs> and like, and not because the actress was overweight or like anything like, or just anything. It's just the fact that it was, it was just unflattering on. Her. Yeah, it was just. But yeah. it was a combination of the fact that it was again very cheap costume and the fact that it's just a very chintzy costume, and that it's just exactly. it, it it doesn't work in the real world. <laughs> yeah. So the MCU is going to have to step it up when they introduce the Fantastic Four. Yeah. <laughs> I think they should. Uh, they should hire Oli Sassone to direct uh, Fantastic Four that comes out in 2024. That would be something. And get Jessica Alba to play Sue Storm. <laughs> no, you have Jessica... Uh, who Jessica Alba... Okay, in, in considering that what? Jessica Alba's probably going to be, what, in her 40s by, like, 10 years from now? Something like that, like, I'm sure. Like, who could she play, like, in a Fantastic... Like, what's a fan... Is there a female Fantastic Four villain? Like, she could play, or... Does she even act anymore? I haven't seen Jessica Alba in anything anymore. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I haven't seen her in a while. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, you don't even, I think she retired. Funny enough, I think she. I could have sworn now that I think about it, I read an article that she retired from acting. Hmm, interesting. Well, I don't know. No, I don't really know any or no uh, elderly women Marvel characters come to mind other than Aunt May. Madam <laughs> Web. Madam Web. I know some DC older female characters <laughs> so when they do the crossover movie we'll get jessica alba involved <laughs> oh, Lord. but no i think that's one thing i think about this documentary is that i really like considering you have like all these actors and none of them really ever hit it big yeah i hope that whenever they make like fantastic like marvel does their fantastic four film which will come out that will happen eventually mm-hmm. i really hope they give all like the main actors in this all like like six to ten of them like some glorified cameo role. That would be so cool. Yeah. Like, I think, like, I, I, I did hope someone like Kevin Feige would be like, because I know in Ant Man, when, like, Paul Rudd first time, like, dons the Ant Man suit, and he's, mm-hmm. like, 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 doing the whole Honey, I Shrunk the Kids thing where he's, like, going through the different, like, floors of the house. Yeah. He eventually, like, ends up, like, on top of, like, a, like a taxi or something. He, like, crushes the roof in. Mm-hmm. And the guy, it, there's a, a black guy inside the cab, and, I didn't know about this until I read the articles. Again, of course, there was 500 articles opening yeah. weekend. But the actor inside the, the cab played the first live screen adaptation of Ant-Man from an SNL skit, like, in the <laughs> 80s. Oh, man, that's so cool. And that's the kind of thing, like, okay, they have a sense of humor about this and appreciation for what came before yeah. them. Yeah. So, I'm like, if they do make this, if, if these actors are... In good health, and are still able to like perform properly. I'm not saying you make you make uh, Alex Hyde Pierce the <laughs> or God damn it, Alex Hyde White, David Hyde White, <laughs> David Hyde Pierce. You make David Hyde Pierce the villain of like I'm not saying that, but like I, you'd hope they have some sort of like 
glorified cameo, not yeah. just like like out of focus in the background, like buying a hot dog, but like there's somebody like I, I don't even know anymore. Saying that all these Marvel movies are just the main actors. Like I'm trying to think. Like, there's, there's not even any like. Like in, even like in Infinity War, I can't think of any point for just like a glorified cameo. Like everybody's a main character. Yeah, uh, there's yeah, no I mean, room for extras. There's no, there's no Peter, room for just like Peter Dinklage, right? <laughs> I well, even that you need like you need an actor. Like you can't just have like a like I said like like the cabbie in Ant Man. Like you can't just have mm-hmm. that in Infinity War because there's no room for a cabbie. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a that's a good point. Yeah, definitely. There's no like you know errant scenes where just other people are involved. Infinity War was a big scale thing. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of like I think it's like what they do it in the Avengers and and in Age of Ultron, where I think in Avengers it's like the the woman who works at the cafe is a waitress. Okay. And I think in Age of Ultron there's like like a woman with her child. Mm-hmm. It's like like something like that where it's like oh they're in a couple scenes, but it doesn't require any sort of like, like very limited speaking roles. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe like two or three lines at like tops, but just enough for people to be like, "That's like those are the people from from the original Fantastic Four. Yeah, that would be cool if they Some, worked something, it in something. Because I think these people like like they are like I know like everything again. That's a, that's the sad thing with Disney is like everything is there to protect the brand. We don't do anything that could possibly hurt the brand. The brand mm-hmm. uh, comes before all, but you do have to pay tribute to the fact that like oh. These people are part of the history of the company. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Whether you like it or not, we have to. Much like the Fantastic <laughs> Four, we have to love our family, warts and all. Mm-hmm. Or in mm-hmm. the case of Ben Grimm, uh, dry and rocky. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> right on. Uh, I agree. So, uh, anything else, Rob? You want to talk about this? No, we I delve into some things at the end. No, no. Um, uh, maybe the one, maybe one or two things I want to point out. In the documentary, I don't know if you picked up on this, Zach, at one point they talk about the costume designer for the Fantastic Four movie. I found it very funny that his the costume designer for this film, his name was Reeve Richards. Oh, re- really? I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, so the costume designer, who they don't interview, I think they just have like a shot of him, you know, like a, a photo or something. But his name was Reeve Richards. I thought that, like, coincidence? Maybe not. <laughs> that poor guy probably got dunked on so much on set. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention is in the part of the actual unreleased version of the film that I did see, there was one line that I thought was really funny. Um, it's like when Reed Richards and Ben Grimm are teaming up and you know they're like they're teaming up to go into space or whatever, and they're trying to recruit the storms, Johnny and Sue Storm. They go to the storm house, and like Johnny and Sue Storm's mother answers the door, and Ben Grimm has a line where he's like, "Hey, Mrs. Storm, can Johnny and Sue go to space with us today?" <laughs> and that, I thought that was that's I thought cute, that was, though. Yeah, that is cute. I thought that I really liked that. Hi, Mrs. Storm. Johnny and Susan go to outer space with us? Well, I don't know, dear. You'll have to ask them. (laughs) (laughs) That's, but the problem, I think, like we already said, though, you're not going to get any of that in a new Marvel. They are going to say, nope, nope, that's that's, that's too cute. People Mm -hmm. won't respond to that. The the, the focus groups say, "Uh uh-uh, take it out. We we need brooding. Someone needs to be brooding, unless he's the, then it's not really a comic book movie. Yes, the old woman has to have a heart attack when you answer the door. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a death in the family to motivate everybody. 
but no, my, my final question when it comes to Fantastic Four to Rob is, I am a, I think Rob knows, a fan of like Blu-rays and tangible media. Yeah. I think Rob is the exact uh, opposite of that. Rob sees a disc and it's like, oh man, that's the shiniest coaster I've ever seen. <laughs> and and so my so my thing is is that uh, putting put I, I guess I don't know how you do this though, but could you really like let's say for example Avi Arad didn't burn the print, sure, and and somebody find like let's say Kevin, Kevin Feige has all the clout in the world, mm-hmm. and let's just say one day he forgets either the, he has like too many Bloody Marys that morning. Or he forgets to take his medication. He's like, I'm going to release this film on Blu-ray. Yeah. As like, because I think, because well, I didn't have a release, so we don't know. So let's just say, yeah. come 2024, they're going to be like, oh, we're going to release the 30th anniversary of this movie. Or, whatever, mm-hmm. or 25th anniversary next year. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see that happening? Where they could just say, you know what, we're going to release this as some like unseen gem. And we're going to make it like a, like... A $40 Blu-ray exclusive. Do I see them creating it? No. Oh, sorry. Creating or or releasing it? Releasing, I guess I should say. Do I see them releasing it? No, because honestly, I think that, you know, the people who would buy it are the people who have seen this already. The people who like that there's an unreleased version and they're fans of it, you know? I don't think the common Marvel fan is going to latch on to this in any way shape or form you know i feel the people who are seeing the marvel movies today that's the type of marvel movie that they want you know high quality they expect a certain structure to it for some to some extent this is too different this is too old i would say for the for the uh it's a niche market and i don't think that's enough for them to want to release it to fill that niche market all right uh i i could not to say anything against rob but this is kind of a loaded question i kind of asked just so i could uh Ask myself, let myself answer it. Because <laughs> as Zach is, often does. <laughs> as Zach often does. Ask a question to Rob just with the intent of answering it himself. But this was, I didn't know this. Because like when it comes to indie boutique, like Blu-ray labels, like you have mm-hmm. Shout, you have Kino Lorber, you have okay. Criterion. When it comes to like more high profile, our movies that are owned by the studios, they have to license those films from the yeah. studios. And like that, like Warner Brothers just started letting like these labels, like I, Creepshow was one they just recently. Uh, Warner Brothers is always apprehensive about licensing their catalog, but one of the other, one of the, probably the biggest studio that never licenses any titles is Disney. Okay, and I didn't know this. And I think this is on one of Rob's sh- long short list. Is what was it called? Big Trouble with Tim Allen. Yeah, Big Trouble. Where that was the movie where again Rob knows the story where it was like it's supposed to come out like two weeks after nine eleven. It was about like a blowing up an airport or something or blowing up a plane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's so, a, an extended scene where there's like a, a, a terroristic type event on a plane. Yeah. It's the climax of the movie. Exactly. It had to be shelved indefinitely because Disney's like, Well, we're not gonna touch the top potato. <laughs> and it didn't come out until I think like May the following year or maybe March. Mm-hmm. And but I just found out that like it got a Blu-ray release. Oh, and I'm like, wow, that's like, okay. Clearly, there's a market for this. But I didn't know it was a Disney movie until I read, and I found out that Disney licensed it to Kino Lorber, which is one of the not one of the top tier indie boutique labels, but they're they're there. They're in the same circles, but not sure. just as high up. And so I was wondering, what would stop? And I think I'm using. I'm not sure if Rob's even aware of half of these companies, but like a Shout Factory. 
from say going like once the Fox Disney deal is done, like like let's say a year, two years from now. Yeah. Um. So it's gonna be done sooner, but just for the sake of just letting time pass, yeah. goes to Disney and says like, okay, do you even have this print still? Like, like it, does this exist? I wonder if allowing a third party label to come in to release it as a Something not I don't mean like creep show as in a horn anthology, yeah. but releasing it for a niche audience in the <clears> sense of like, oh, we're releasing like the film you've never seen before. Yeah. And, and it's clearly marketed, like obviously it's not to get TV commercials, but it's very clearly marketed on the internet as what it is. Because this isn't like twenty years ago where there there's brand confusion. Like people are able like I know the stories like, oh, uh, people people don't read the, the drama and the headlines about these movies when they're in, in production. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, BS. When they're, when they're on the top thing for Google as headlines, people yeah. do read it now. This isn't like in the trade newspapers where unless you had a subscription to Variety, <laughs> you didn't yeah. know about it. Definitely. It's, I think nowadays people are, are – who, who anybody who goes to the movies has a, a loose grasp on what goes on with some of these movies. Mm-hmm. Especially now that it's so much entangled in the culture about how, how, how all these th- stuff is made. Uh, there, there's no more curtain veiling how the sausage is made. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's the only thing I have to say. This I wonder if somebody could go to uh, who has a, a background in these sort of like niche products that are off off kilter, and went to Disney and was like, "Okay, we want to license this from you," knowing that like this is you won't be associated other than the fact that we licensed it from you mm-hmm. and we want to release it, just get it out into the public space. I wonder if there'd still be that same level of, we don't want this out here, out, out here for brand confusion. We're afraid it's going to poison. The I wonder if yeah, there'll ever good, come a point question. where they'll, they'll, if it still exists, if they'll ever release it. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows that? I think we're just gonna have to wait and see how it plays out. Right. Because, you know, Disney kind of holds all the cards. I I think, you know, nothing's stopping these independent, you know, licensors or releasers, distributors of this stuff from going and asking Disney for this. But it really is up to Disney in the end. And that's the biggest what if of them all. And I think and I think the biggest what if is how many zeros does the check have? Yeah, well, of, of, well, of course. <laughs> because that's because I don't think Disney would say no. It would just be some astronomical sum that they know they wouldn't be able to make their money back on, and that would just shut them down. It's like, okay, well, we tried. Yeah. And, and that's and I, I'm just curious. I wonder if anybody's ever reached out to like Fox. Like Fox doesn't care. Fox doesn't give a crap. So they're not gonna they're not gonna take those phone calls. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine. Like with Disney, if somebody like somebody pursued it and said like, okay, we want to know, and the whole issue, I guess, then would even be if Disney agreed to it, someone would have to go find it. Exactly. If it exists, somebody has to go. Like then that's the other mystery. It's not just simply like a a freak mm-hmm. where it's sitting in a, in, a, in a vault somewhere waiting to be dusted off. It's the whole idea of like, okay, is it somewhere to be dusted off? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of uncertainties in this process, definitely. Yeah, which I guess I'd I'd love to see this in its uh, in, in remastered HD glory. I would absolutely love to see this in the what it would have looked like in a theater in the mid nineties. I agree, that would be interesting, and I think until we get to see something like that, you know, it's it's tough to to you know rank this. Of course, this is November, and we're always talking about movies that don't exist, but it is tough to rank this. And I think in our in our big you know main question ways, Cinemonity's late night movie, we don't really have anything that represents what it should have been. 
So that being said, Rob, I think we kind of talked about the fact that we, we kind of low-key discussed whether this is a cinematic. We kind of danced around the specific question, mm-hmm. but we kind of highlighted everything surrounding it. I think it's a, I think the Fantastic Four is a concept as a cinematic. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I don't know how you make a proper Fantastic Four movie without it uh, alienating part of your audience. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, I think this film, if it would have come out in the mid-90s, wouldn't have been a cinematic. I think it would have fit in just fine with everything else that existed. I think in a post-Burton Batman world, I think this would not have even caused a blip on the radar. I completely agree. That's kind of how I see it. If this movie did come to fruition in the way that all the people involved in its creation wanted it to, I I find it hard to imagine that this wouldn't just be another failed, doing air quotes, Marvel movie of that time period. So, you know, that that's kind of how I see it. It would have come out, people would have, you know, there would have been fans that probably enjoyed it, but like Zach said, it wouldn't have been a blip on the radar. We still would have had Burton's Batman and Donner's Superman looming over everything back in the 90s. Yep, and you would still had, uh, I still think this would have been probably in the same pot as probably the Schumacher's Batman's. It would have been like, oh, we had Schumacher, <laughs> Batman. <laughs> well, that's we it. Very- <laughs> that's a different story. Now you're putting him in the category with the greatest Batman films ever made. <laughs> The Val Kilmer Batman movie. Oh, of course. (laughs) Uh, Uh, So, Rob, what snack do we eat during this? So, yes, what snack? What snack is going on the menu at the Cinemodities restaurant? So I I was hoping to get a snack idea when I watched the, the unreleased version of the Fantastic Four. But, of course, like I said, I didn't get through the whole whole uh, length of it. But I did come up with a snack, and I think it should be the Fantastic Four meal. Okay, so hear me out, Zach. I tried to combine all the elements of the Fantastic Four into one. If you order the Fantastic Four meal, your dish is it's gummy candy. It's stretchy gummy candy. That's where I want to start, to reflect Reed Richards. But it is hard as a rock and constantly on fire. So now, here's the kicker, Zach. It's invisible. So when you order this, the waiter's going to bring you out just an empty plate. But somewhere on that plate, not necessarily the center, is a flaming rock-hard piece of gummy candy. I knew that was coming. You have to put it out before you can eat it. And then if you do eat it, it breaks your teeth. What do you think? That does sound appetizing. (laughs) I I, kind of like this idea, or love this idea, I should say. Because I like the concept of serving something that's on fire, but it's invisible. It's like a it's like a play on a flambe, you know. It's like you can't see the only point of lighting, because the only reason you light food on fire is for the display. It's not like the fire cooks it, you know. It's just like burning off alcohol so you can you know make it look cool to the customer. So so I want to take away the one aspect of lighting food on fire, but certainly keep it on fire. What do you think? I, I like it. I like okay. it. But, so but what did you I, have, Snackmaster? Uh, you know what, Rob? Unfortunately, when it came to Fantastic Four snack items, we were actually beat to the punch by Denny's three years ago. What? Because in 2015, and maybe we're, you know what, we'll save maybe half of these for the Fan Four Stick episode. Okay. But for that movie, <laughs> Denny's had a, a menu inspired by the film. A hundred percent beef burger, melted cheddar, with crispy hash browns and an egg your way. Now that's a burger. Uh, uh. 
You want that to go again, sweetie. The Thing Burger. Welcome to Denny's. Fantastic Four, only in theaters. Oh, I, I don't think I ever heard about this. Oh, man. It was called The Slam Tour Stick Menu. S-L-A-M-T, the number four, S-T-I-C. Slam Store Stick <laughs> Menu. Okay. And, and these, these are some of the menu items. We might double dip into this come when we do Fan Four Stick. Sure, maybe sure. We won't go into specifics here, but these were the menu items. Okay. New Human Torch Skillet. <laughs> Just the skillet? Yes, we'll get. Like I said, next. Let me do. Like I said, Van Four sticks on the on the agenda. That's coming. Okay. We'll, we'll break but that these down. That doesn't sound like there's any food. A skillet is a a skillet is the thing you cook with. The skillet isn't a dish. Well, it's a breakfast. <laughs> it's a breakfast skillet. That's okay, still I'll, to I'll, me. That's still to be a pan. That's no food. <laughs> all right. Okay. Okay. Rob thinks we're eating this metal, but this this is what's list, This is what's listed on the, on the items. A, this is the new. Every single item also has the word "new!" exclamation point in front of, of it. Of course, of course. And so I'm assuming that's part of the title. The new is the part of the meal. Oh, of course. Yeah, the new human torch skillet includes a hearty breakfast sausage with seasoned red skin potatoes, sautéed mushrooms, five roasted bell peppers and onions, five jalapenos, and freshly made pico de gallo served on a sizzling hot skillet topped with our new spicy five pepper sauce. Wait, so Pepper Jack saying, queso and two eggs cooked to order. So they're saying if you put any food in a skillet, you can call it a skillet? Essentially. What the fuck is that? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, if I serve soup in a, in a, like a saucepan, can I call it saucepan? Like, is it not soup anymore? Okay, that's an argument for another time, Zach. That sounds pretty good. I, except I don't know why they have to include five peppers and onions. Wouldn't Shouldn't it be four? Like, shouldn't the menu, if they're going to specifically say how much of an ingredient they include, shouldn't every possible number be four to match with the theme? Oh, my bad. Fire, okay, fire roasted bell peppers, excuse oh, me. Oh, it right? wasn't five roasted No, it bell. wasn't. It should, you're right. It should say four four bell roasted peppers. Yeah, I was like, why would they draw attention to the fact that they, they have the number five, but fire roasted? Okay, that makes right. more sense. Okay, we have the new Fantastic Four Cheese Omelette. Mm. The new Invisible Woman Slam. <laughs> that sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> and we have we have one more item, but we're going to save it for last. But before we get there, we have the new Doctor Doom Lava Cake, a warm, rich chocolate cake filled with molten chocolate and topped with mini chocolate and white chocolate chips, baked and finished with powdered sugar and a scoop of premium chocolate ice cream. That doesn't look. Or sound anything like Doctor Doom. <laughs> okay, and this is the piece de resistance. Okay, so brace yourself. New the thing burger. <laughs> okay, <laughs> hand pressed beef patty topped with crispy hash browns, an egg cooked to order, cheddar cheese, two crispy bacon strips. Brace yourself, Rob. Okay, and punch packing thing sauce. <laughs> served on a cheddar cheese bun with our wavy cut french fries. Wait, didn't you say there was cheddar cheese on the burger already? Yes. And the, and then there's a cheddar cheese bun? Yes. What is a cheddar cheese what is a cheese bun? Do you know I, Zach? Okay, I'm a little I'm a little bothered by the fact that there's something called thing sauce and he's not bothered by that. Well, look, we're but, getting to that. We're getting to that. Unfortunately, we live in a linear timeline, Zach. <laughs> I don't know why there's cheddar on top of cheddar. Maybe they really 
maybe maybe exhibit design this burger. He heard you like cheddar, so he put some cheddar on top of the burger and in the burger, so you can be enjoying enjoying cheddar while you're eating cheddar. Sure, Americans love cheese too. I, I don't get the egg on that sandwich. The egg doesn't make sense to me. But Not, there's hash browns too. Yeah, the hash browns make sense. That looks like the thing, kind of like if you have some golden brown hash browns, it might look like the rocks type of, you know, the exterior of the thing. But is there any more information now, of course, on the thing sauce, like how this is made? Maybe. Well, well, I no, there's no exp- on the menu itself. There is no explanation as to what the thing sauce entails. Okay, but I know there's a Screen Crush article where, at the time, one of the authors, I think now he's the the editor at large of Screen Rant. Okay, or I'm sorry, Screen Crush. And I just actually, opened this article, yeah. <laughs> all right, you know, we're, sa- we're saving that article when we do Fan Four Stick. Okay, we're not going to okay. read that now, but this is a tease of what's to come. That The author of the article ate the entire menu that day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we'll, I th- I'm pretty sure, if I, I haven't read the article since he posted it back like the day the movie came out, like August of 2015, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty certain that he delved, that was one of the biggest mysteries of the the day was trying to discern what made thing sauce. Okay, okay. <laughs> right but on. It seems that Denny's beat us to the punch, Rob. Denny's hurt years in advance. Maybe Rob was the menu chef designer <laughs> on top of the many things he's able to done in the past. Not for uh, Rob was Rob was the uh, the chef curator for Denny's in the mid 2015. I think I've been to a Denny's once, and one of the people I was with asked the waitress how fresh their coffee was, and the waitress paused for like five seconds and then said, I don't know. That's a bad answer. <laughs> That's a really bad answer. <laughs> oh, Lord. Even if you know it's old, you say it's fresh, right, as a restaurateur? <laughs> yeah. When when someone at the Cinematic restaurant asked the Whatever waiter, you know, Jodorowsky, Rob or Zach, whoever else we have. I don't think we've agreed on anything else so far. No. Um, when they ask, you know, how fresh is the caviar fountain? They say that it's like, it's the freshest. Like we're, you know, gutting the sturgeon as as it's coming out of the wall, basically. <laughs> we'll delve more into that come fan time. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to talk about what we're going to do, you know, because Denny's kind of, you know, took this from us. We'll have to, you know, maybe... I don't know, litigate, something like that. <laughs> or even better, we might have to, we might, considering they already beat us to the punch, we might have to one-up them when it comes to a fan four-stick menu. Yes, yes. Alrighty, Rob, but until then, what are we going to end this episode with? Well, I think we have to mention that even though November is ending on Cinemodities, I think it's going to come out after this, correct me if I'm wrong, Zach, we're going to have another little November addendum, is that a good way to put it? Sure. Sure, but it's going to appear on the Knights of Vader podcast. Is there anything more you want to say about that, Zach? Well, chances are, if you've been listening to this entire series, we also did a, a kind of tangential episode on Knights of Vader about David Lynch's Return of the Jedi. For the one of you that listens to this podcast that doesn't listen to Knights of Vader, <laughs> definitely go check out that episode as we delve into what David Lynch's Return of the Jedi might have looked like. And we don't even know because we haven't even recorded the episode yet by the time we're recording this. So keep in mind that when you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the episode yet, we're just in the dark about it as you are. Yep, and it should be mentioned that this is going to be the first thing in November that we're discussing that doesn't have a corresponding documentary. 
No, we're, we're breaking new ground. We're going to make the documentary. <laughs> we're in the dark completely, guys. <laughs> we'll make the very crudely made documentary where we interview people. Yes, yes. And I'm going to do all the voices for the people we interview. <laughs> yes, the voice acting will be great. Indeed. I think the other thing that we should point out is now that November is coming to a conclusion, what we're going to do next. And after November, if you don't know, is December. Right, Zach? Am oh, I boy. right? And I think it was determined a while back, this is the one thing Zach and I have been like completely settled on for a while, that we're going to do Christmas-themed things. Is that a good way to state it? Well, it's December's going to be Fala-Lala Days. Fala-Lala Days, yes, yes. We came up with that name before we ever thought of Octo... Ox... Monstover. <laughs> I was about to say Oxtober. Oxtober. So we couldn't do Destover. Or December. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. So, so yes, Fa-la-la-la-la-la days. Fa-la-la-la days. We'll be delving into different Christmas movies. Rob and I split it right down the middle. He picked two. I picked two. Rob's choices are locked in. One of my choices <laughs> is locked in, but one is very much up in the air that I'm pretty sure Rob won't know what to watch until the day of. So Indeed. it'll be fun. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. Yeah, that's what we have to look forward to. Some holiday-themed nonsense from us. All right. If, if there's nothing else, Zach, I actually have an idea on how to end this episode. Are you ready? I'm ready. So I like that in, in November we've been using the N in Superiority Complex song backwards. Check out the links in the show notes for all their new music. But I have to say, the outro music for the Doomed documentary on Roger Corman's Fantastic Four was really, really cool. I really liked that music. I think we should play that in reverse. Well, goodbye, November. Welcome, holidays. We're going to be singing Christmas carols next time you hear us. In reverse. In reverse, yes. <laughs>